So most often, right at this point, I am telling you to do something, and most often that is open your Bible to some passage. And, uh, and that's a good thing. It's a good thing that I tell you to open your Bible when we get right to a passage, but I want to direct your attention somewhere else this morning. I want you to take your Bible or your phone or your tablet or whatever, maybe your scroll. Some, some people are going really old school. Uh, and I just want you to put it in your lap. I want you to hold on to it. If you don't have a Bible, um, I have good news for you. You have been gifted a free Bible. It's sitting in the chair in front of you. I'm not even going to chase you down to see if you read it. I hope you read it, but it's your gift if you don't own a Bible. Hold a Bible in front of you for a minute. What I want you to do this morning is instead of doing something, I want you to consider this idea. We have been called first and foremost as sons and daughters of the Most High King to be. We are called in to just be, not do stuff. We're super good at doing stuff. In fact, we like doing stuff. There's great joy in work. That can be a huge act of worship. But one of the challenges may be that a Bible church, and we like having the word Bible on the street corner of Branham, is that maybe sometimes we put our focus thinking maybe the life is in the words. Maybe it's if I can get the Bible open, get the understanding, go deep, I'll have the abundant life and miss the person. So while holding the scriptures and being thankful for what, uh, for what we hold in our hands, readily available to us, I want you to, to, to feel it, to tactically hold it. And while you're doing that, look around you at people. Just look around at people. Okay? God has blessed us with something so powerful that um, doesn't shout to us, doesn't grab us by the collar and make us read it, make us notice it. It sits ready and available like an invitation. God has blessed us with image bearers that surround us. What we just did with communion, friends, has been celebrated since Jesus left this earth, promising to come back by Christians for hundreds of years. On this day, there will just be Christians that don't speak our language, don't look like us, that just participated with us in proclaiming the Lord's death until he comes again. So while we're going to get into Scripture and while we're going to preach, hopefully, a scriptural message... Instead of starting with doing, instead of starting with open your Bible and get to a passage and do something, understand something, learn more, I want our attention to just be on the fact that we're together this morning and not to overlook that fact. It's a gift. It's a gift to be here. I recorded several 9-11 documentaries uh, last week. I went to my DVR, set them up ahead of time. And they were interviewing the dispatcher who had been the last person on earth to talk to a gentleman named Todd Beamer. You may remember him. He's the one that said, let's roll. He was on the flight that crashed over Pennsylvania. And all these years later, people are discussing that day and the images are replayed and they're discussing it. And you find people like a 911 dispatch person who went to work that day like a lot of other people and had their lives altered. And all these years later, you just saw her chin start to quiver as she sat there and recounted the conversation she had 
with, with this guy who had two children, a wife and a child on the way. And she made this comment. She said, just enjoy the people in your life each day. You never know how long you'll be alive. And I heard her say that in light of what I was going to discuss this morning with us and, and, and where my thoughts were going. I said a few weeks ago in our marriage series that nothing is more important than relationships because nothing lasts longer. And that Jesus modeled this. Jesus modeled this by word and deed. And isn't it true that tragedy has a way suddenly of bringing those to the forefront? There's nothing like tragedy to highlight the importance of people in our lives. We get lulled into a sleep that thinks that they'll just be here forever. They were here yesterday. They were here the day before. Truth be told, I'm kind of sick of seeing them. They'll probably be here tomorrow. And then they're not one day. Another thing from our news, there's a giant storm that's been hitting the East Coast. And we recently said goodbye to a beloved family, the Clinkenbeards, Robert and Melissa and their kids. And I just heard from him this morning. They're doing fine. Continue to pray for people in that region. But we said goodbye to them. And I thought specifically about them this week. Why? Because tragedy is happening in their region. They're under threat of tragedy. So there's nothing like tragedy and disaster to sort of thrust these things into the forefront. We live in a very divided world. We have people taking sides, people taking stands. There's, there's walls going up everywhere. This isn't really different than, than through the ages, but we're living in this age, so we know this age, right? Wouldn't you agree that there's lots of talking and probably less amounts of listening going on? When you think about walls and stands and talking without listening, these are the recipe that foster isolation rather than fostering community. It fosters you being separated out into a smaller and smaller clique rather than fostering and engendering togetherness. And we see that. We see the effects of that. There's still a few places in our community that very quickly thrust people into a closeness that's pretty fascinating. One of the things that is part of my calling is I spend time in ICU waiting rooms. In the ICU waiting room, it's a very small space, generally speaking. And much like the DMV, uh, the ICU waiting room is a discriminator of no one. Everyone gets to visit at some point from all walks of life. So consider the people in a small space in an ICU waiting room. And then consider for a minute, how important do you think clothes are in that waiting room? We put on clothes to sort of project a certain image of ourselves or what we like or what we find fashionable or what we're trying to say about ourselves. How important is fashion in the ICU waiting room? I mean, it just fades into the background. Let's keep going. Anyone care much about their profession in the ICU waiting room? Not a lot of networking going on there. How upwardly mobile you are? How about skin color or age? Or weight? Or your sexual preference? Or your political leanings? Do you know what you see in the ICU waiting room? You see human beings that are hurting. And you see people band together, and when a doctor comes through that door, when it's good news, guess what? It's everyone's good news. 
And when it's not good news, some of you have walked there with this. You are hugging and crying and praying for strangers that you didn't know moments before. So tragedy has this way of highlighting what we all know to be true, and that is that people are important. That people are our priority. You know, um, I so appreciate someone from our church, I think it was last week, it was last week, Ben asked the question, let's just call out the miracles in our lives that we see. And the guy spoke up, thanks for sobriety. I'm here to tell you, friends, every person in this room needs to sober up from something. The more I thought about him saying, thanks for sobriety, I thought, wow, God, you have spared me from that demon. I've never been tempted by alcohol. But lest that form pride in you, take alcohol and you identify that besetting sin. You identify that demon that has tempted you. A part of why I come to church every Sunday, I need to sober up from something. Here's what I think could happen. I think this morning could be a wake-up call for us. It could be a splash of cold water. It could be finding yourself waking up in a drunk tank and just sobering up and saying, what am I doing in my life? What's going on? What are my priorities? It's true that God can rearrange our priorities through drastic shakeups, but can't he also work wonders in the far more mundane? I mean, you thought you were just dressing up and going to church today. But you know what? God has this way of finding in the mundane a little story that sort of needles into your life and changes your life. He can shake up our priorities by the simple spoken word, by an invitation. You'll notice on the handout this morning, you doers, lay down your pen. Lay down your iPad pen. Whatever, you're, whatever you take notes with, you don't have to take notes this morning. Okay? If you want to jot some thoughts down, great. But it's snowy white on your handout this morning, and you can just leave it that way if you would like. A plus. Good job. Gold star. The theme is trustworthy companions this morning. And Jesus had this little saying that, uh, that went like this. He said, if you're trustworthy in a little... There's a principle here. You'll be trustworthy in much. And there's a counterpart. If you are unfaithful in the little things, you will be unfaithful. You can extrapolate it. You'll be unfaithful in the, in the true riches. He distinguished between sort of small riches and true riches. You know what the true riches were? Relationships. Relationships are what the true riches are. Paul alludes to this in Philippians. If you'd like to turn to Philippians, turn to Philippians 4. And in Philippians 4, the context is this. Watch this. Small riches, money, stuff, needs. Paul's talking about thanking the Philippian church, as he put it, for the kindness of sharing in his trouble. What was his trouble? His trouble was that he had financial need. 
He says that no other church partnered with him except for the Philippians. So he's encouraging them. He's thanking them. It's a thank you letter. But he very quickly moves from temporal small riches into the deeper. And in Philippians 4.19 he says this, And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. Sometimes Christians have gotten this wrong over the ages and they have decided that stuff doesn't matter. I'm here to tell you stuff matters. When God came to us in the form of Jesus Christ, the triune God settled it once for all of time that he is keenly interested, not just in, as Rich Mullins said, the winds of heaven, but the stuff of earth. So God cares about stuff. Matter matters. Jesus showed us that. At the same time, matter isn't forever, and stuff isn't true riches. To look for that, to really invest in that, to really enjoy that, you know what we do? We look to the image bearers, the fellow image bearers. We look to people to find out what's going on. Today what I want to do is I want to remind you of a simple truth. I'm not going to tell you anything new. Don't look to be blown away by something new this morning. By giving yourself to gathering with other people on a Sunday morning, by giving yourself to gather with people during the week, you are first and foremost making a statement to yourself about your priorities. And what you're saying is this, my priority is people. My priority is people. Over God, of course not. But you can meet with God anywhere. Amen? Amen. That's the beauty of the incarnation. Christ with us, the hope of glory. I'm leaving, Jesus said, but it's great because I'm going to be with you all the time. I'm leaving my spirit with you wherever you go. So why do we gather? Why do we come together? Because our priority is people. And by showing up here, you're making a statement that you're part of something bigger. You're you're obeying Jesus' call to gather together. Jesus tells us who are blessed people. Remember? Blessed are the poor in spirit, those who mourn. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are the hungry for God, the merciful, the pure in heart, the peacemakers, and the persecuted. Do you know that Sunday mornings are a gift? I love it because every Sunday morning I get to look at a boss and employees sitting in the same room as children of God. We take off the titles, we take off the responsibility, we take off what we do, what we offer, what we don't do, how good we are, how terrible we are. We lay it all at the cross and we show up, we're just all worshipers. I love looking out on a Sunday morning over our two services and you stay for the third, you see it more pronounced, that across every line that our culture draws up, Jesus is saving people. Jesus is calling followers and we're gathering to celebrate that. To look at that and just lay down our week. But we also retune our frequency to, as the song says, sing His grace. Tune my heart to sing your grace. So it's part of what we do here on a Sunday morning. Those who take Jesus at His word are at least two things. We're followers and we're fishermen. 
He said, follow me, right? I'll make you fishers of men. So you take Jesus at, at his word, you follow him. One of the places he leads you, by the way, is to church. Not to this physical building, but to gather with other Christians. Those who take Jesus at his word are bound closer than blood, closer than business associates, closer than circumstances could ever provide. Let me show you a definition that we use regularly in our membership class. And we stole it from a book called Vintage Church, and they stole it from the book of Acts, so we're good re-stealing it, just borrowing it and showing it to you. But I want you to see what, what we mean when we say the word church. That's a loaded term in America. A local church is a community of regenerated believers who confess Jesus Christ as Lord. In obedience to Scripture, they organize under qualified leadership, gather regularly for preaching and worship, observe the biblical sacraments of baptism and communion, are unified by the Spirit, are disciplined for holiness, and scattered to fulfill the great commandment and the great commission as missionaries to the world for the glory for God's glory and their joy. Men and women of the word, you hear a lot of scripture packed in there, don't you? I mean, your word, maybe you don't know chapter and verse, but you know that's just calling on a ton of scripture. In 12 years, I haven't found a better definition, so we keep using this one. Here's what I want to highlight this morning. Look at all of the togetherness that is involved in being a church. Community, organized, gather regularly, baptism and communion unified. Being a church is being together. Now here's a truism that we just know in life. Getting together isn't hard, staying together is hard. Amen? It's easy to get together. It's easy to start things. Where do you find the staying power? Togetherness has a way of fading, kind of trickling away without us even noticing it. Parents split and churches split. Families wander and sheep wander. Churches can almost just kind of wander, even if we physically gather every week. Just as your family can gather for Christmas and Easter and have family time, but be as distant as can be, we could gather every week and go through the motions for years and be distant with each other. Be distant from the Lord. Businesses and bands and teams and couples all break up. For a church, I think it's sometimes as simple as forgetting who it is that we are. So Jesus calls us to follow him in fish. He also tells us that we are light and salt. You know this to be true. That if you live... As a disciple in this city, you long to gather once again, at least weekly, with the company of the blessed. You know why? Because you're worn out. It's tiring. Where are salt and light most effective? When they're not with their own kind. So what happens is, when we dismiss you every week, we are sending you out, as Jesus said, as sheep in the midst of wolves. We're sending you out into a world that is not your permanent home. 
So you simply take Jesus at his word, you will find yourself opening your mouth. Talked to a friend yesterday. He was on the job. A person made this definitive statement. There is no afterlife. When we die, the lights go off. You know what he did? He opened his mouth. (laughs) That's it. He challenged that statement. The spirit loosed his tongue to be able to start preaching Jesus to this woman. And when you do that, when you open your mouth, when you find yourself unashamed of the greatest news that you've ever come across, you will be persecuted. Didn't Jesus promise this? this? So don't you long to get together? I mean, this is a drink of cold water to come. Is there gossip in churches? Yeah. Should there be? Mm -mm. Favoritism when you walk through the door? Yeah. We're still a people in process. Should there be? No. We come in here as people sent on a mission throughout our week. And even keeping in step with the Spirit, there is a, there is a burden to it. It's, it. It can be tiring. It is so refreshing to come to be with the company of the blessed. Not only to receive, but to give the mercy. To give that hunger, to pass on that hunger to other people. So we say quite plainly this morning that Sundays aren't enough. If relationships are our true riches, then Sunday mornings and community groups are a way of taking them out and enjoying them and perhaps even developing them. John Ortberg said this. I love this. He says, we cannot make friendship and love happen. And that's the nature of relationships. You don't manufacture it. It's not an assembly line. Do this plus this plus this. You'll have great friends. We cannot make friendship and love happen. They come when they come at all. As gifts. Watch this. But we can make space for them. Each fall, for as long as I can remember now, I'm sure there was a time we didn't do this, but we provided a specific Sunday to on-ramp people into community. And that's what's happening this morning. I want you to assess your life this morning and ask, are you in the habit of meeting with God in the company of other people. I see a lot of faces that I see every week. That's what I mean. If I know your face and you sit here, that's what I'm talking about. Are you in the habit of meeting with God in the company of other people? And if you want to change that, consider this quote, that it takes a habit to break a habit. I can't think of many people that I talk to that don't say that, that relationships are a priority over the job and making money. I mean, very few people say, yeah, I'm a psychotic person. I think money and job is over people. Most people say that, that relationships take priority. But think about this. How often are relationships cut short? How often do they get the short end of the schedule, the short end of the decision-making process, over the job and making money. So we simply assess not what we say, but our actions, what we do. And if it takes a habit to break a habit, if you are not in the habit of carving out space for people, 
Perhaps today's the day to say, I'm going to start a new habit. In Acts chapter 2, we see this simple line. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. I read that, I ask myself this question, what am I devoted to? Me time? Screen time? Work time? Play time? But people are so exhausting. (laughs) Yes, we are. (laughs) We just look in the mirror. Yes, we are. (laughs) So will you make space for true riches? Those who don't end up dead. Now, to be fair, those who do end up dead also. But here's the difference. Here's the difference. There's a huge difference. Those who don't end up dead all alone. Those who do, they still end up dead. That's where we're all heading. But they end up dead not alone. And we all know this to be true. No matter what our persuasion is, that all the winning in the world, if we're winning all alone, is actually called losing. All the winning in the world, all alone, is losing. I'm going to invite the Hintons up in a second to sort of unfurl our theme this morning. But I want to leave you with two really potent examples. The first is biblical. Solomon kept showing up in my week, uh, last week, when I was putting this together. I had this mostly finished by the end of last week. There are two different books that talked about him. There was a sermon in print that I was reading that mentioned him. And his great love song, Song of Solomon, was part of my Bible reading program about a month ago. So Solomon just, just kept bubbling up. And sometimes when I do that, I go, God, what are you telling me about Solomon? Why does he keep showing up in my, in my reading, in my life, in, in conversation? In Ecclesiastes, we hear the preacher, which is either Solomon or someone sort of role-playing that here's what Solomon did. It says this in Ecclesiastes 2.10. Anything I wanted, I would take. I denied myself no pleasure. I even found great pleasure in hard work, a reward for all my labors. Now, if you're new to the Silicon Valley, this may not be an easy question, but if you've grown up here like I have, is this not sound exactly like where we live? I don't know of another time in history when so many people worldwide have the capacity to live Solomon-like lives. Denying themselves no pleasure. They want it, they buy it. Even hard work. Man, God's wired us for work, for purpose, for achieving, for doing things. And so throwing yourself into that. But where did it all lead? Here's what he says a single verse later. But as I looked at everything I had worked so hard to accomplish, you know it, it was all so meaningless. Like chasing the wind. There was nothing really worthwhile anywhere. Chasing happiness by chasing after appetites is chasing the wind, is the message of Ecclesiastes. And his depression eventually led him to despair. 
You know, there's ancient wisdom that's available to us, but it's often forgotten. Hard-learned truths from the past that are not applied in the present. Let me fast forward to this century. California is the home to some interesting people. And a certain Texan came here a while ago. Howard Hughes died in 1976 with $1.5 billion in worldly riches and far less of what we would call true riches. A guy by the name of Michael Drosnin wrote a book about him. And he writes this, that he wanted more wealth, so he built one of the greatest financial empires of his day. He wanted more pleasure, so he seduced or paid for the most glamorous women money could buy. He wanted more adventure, so he set airspeed records and designed, built, and piloted the world's most unique aircraft. He wanted more power, so he acquired, acquired political clout that was the envy of senators. He wanted more glamour, so he crashed Hollywood, owned studios, and courted stars. Still the envy of many people who are striving today after the wind. Drazen tells us how his life ended. He was a figure of gothic horror, ready for the grave. Emaciated, only 120 pounds stretched over his 6 foot 4 inch frame. Thin, scraggly beard that reached midway onto his sunken chest. Hideous, long nails in grotesque, yellowed corkscrews. Many of his teeth were black, rotting stumps. A tumor was beginning to emerge from the side of his head. Innumerable needle marks. Howard Hughes was an addict. A billionaire junkie. Howard Hughes was the envy of a lot of people. Howard Hughes had no desire to leave any money, catch this, to family, to aides, or to churches. His priority was not people. All the winning in the world is losing if you are alone. Let me invite the Hintons to come on up. We shared with you recently that the Hintons have stepped forward to be our CG directors in this season, and we're thrilled about that. I want you to know that as we talk about community groups, we are hopefully modeling what Jesus did, and we don't mandate that you become a part of a community group. We invite you to. Jesus had all kinds of invitations. Where are you staying, Lord? Come and see. Come check it out. And they stayed with them the rest of the day. So we're, we're inviting you. And what I would ask you to do is this. Some of you, this may be a foregone conclusion. Of course, I'll be in a community group. This is my habit. This is my rhythm. For some of you, your heart's beating because you go, man, I've been down this road. It's so hard. It's so challenging. I've been burned. Some of you, this isn't on your radar at all. You already know you won't be in a community group. Can I ask whatever camp you're in this morning to just sort of have this sort of a posture? You don't need to do it physically, but to open your heart, to open your head. Maybe this is a fresh sort of cold water in your face and say, God, maybe you're going to speak to me in these next few moments of some hungers I have, some desires I have. So let me have the Hintons uh, share with you. How are you guys doing? Good. 
you may have heard the saying, there are no Lone Ranger Christians. As we walk through our lives as Christians, every one of us needs a community of fellow believers who will celebrate and grieve with us, encourage and admonish us, play and pray with us. We need trustworthy companions who will be honest with us and push us closer to God. Community groups in this church are a place where you can find and become trustworthy companions as you pursue a deeper relationship with God, who is our ultimate trustworthy companion. If you're new to community groups, we invite you to come find a community that will take the time to get to know you and encourage you. We believe that if you take the time to know and be known, your trustworthy companions will help you grow closer to God as you help them to do the same. If you're a veteran of community groups, as an act of worship and service, humbly open your lives up to others. Seek to serve God and fellow believers by drawing close to others as a trustworthy companion and lovingly encouraging and spurring others on toward righteousness. We are so excited about this theme for community groups. Building community is one of the most important things for our family and one of the strongest ways in which we see God's love manifested. We can experience his kingdom when we create safe places to reach out to one another, to study the truth of God in depth, and to hold one another's hands through the trials that we know will come. We're excited to help build this into each community group and in the churches at large. We know this isn't easy. We know this means taking a risk to be vulnerable and to be fully known. As Brene Brown said, vulnerability sounds like truth and feels like courage. Truth and courage aren't always comfortable, but they're never weaknesses. We're excited to introduce these groups and leaders. They're committed to being trustworthy companions to bearing burdens. We're humbly asking you, the church, to risk and to be honest and available from now until Christmas. We're asking that each person commit to a season of honesty and growth. We're asking you to find a group that you will show up to and love as brothers and sisters in Christ. The Bible has much to say about community. The New Testament is more proactive in describing what an ideal companion looks like, but the Old Testament is full of great guidelines and implications of fulfilling that call to companionship. Christ was constantly modeling the time and love that it took. Let us be reminded by the truth found in the Bible about life and community. We've asked a couple of people to read a verse, so if you have one of those, just go ahead and stand up and read. Thank you. Uh, as teachers, but also as parents, Kirk and I would never ask anybody to do something that we ourselves are not willing to do. And so we offer ourselves as trustworthy companions to you. We know that we are better as a couple and better as parents when we are surrounded by other families that model authentic Christ-centered love. And this can be very messy, but we also know that it can be very, very worth it. Uh, a small story for you. During our time in Kenya, we noticed something about the community that we were in. That very few expats had actual family that lived close. We all came from somewhere else, whether it was the U.S., Canada, Europe, Korea. Almost everybody had left their loved ones behind. However, we quickly learned that deep bonds could form within this expat community more quickly than we had ever experienced. Our biological families did not support our decision to move overseas. And we found many others in that same situation. We all craved the community that a family can provide. We all needed wiser people to learn from. We all needed encouragement from those in the same stage of our life. And we all needed to pour into others. 
So we got to work. As Jen Hatmaker says, instead of waiting around for community, provide it, and you'll end up with it anyway. So in this situation, we had to choose our families. We had to choose to become family to others. And when we did, when we invited people into our messy, crazy, spicy, hectic family, when we honestly said, this is who we are, this is what we think, these are our struggles, our triumphs, this is our life, we found family. We found family that can feel more like family than our blood family. There's a scene in the movie called Finding Forrester when Sean Connery's character describes this very well. He says, Losing family obliges us to find our family. Not always the family that is our blood, but the family that can become our blood. Our faith is filled with family-based terms. Brother, sister, heavenly father, child of God. What would happen if we truly started thinking of each other as family. This is what we envision for community groups. People who come together, make themselves vulnerable, and take seriously the blessing and responsibility of building a family of trustworthy companions. Now, this does not mean that you should be perfect before joining a community group any more than it means you should be perfect before coming to church or coming to Christ. In line with the principles of NBC, we encourage everybody to come as they are. We need people in all phases of life. Young, old, single, married, conservative, progressive, young Christians, and those who have weathered many storms. When you have Christ in common with someone, your differences just reflect more of God to you than you could see on your own. Family means all generations united by love for God and each other. The truth is, as Christians, we are all foreigners in this land, in this culture, in this world. And we need each other's support. Grow and show your trustworthiness, especially in hard times. The hard times are when we need those trustworthy companions the most to stand by our side when life seems unbearable. We can point the way forward and bear with one another. Uh, right now I'd like to ask the community group leaders who have the clipboards to kind of fan out around the room. And what we're going to do is we're going to have every leader give maybe a 20-second blurb of which, which group you have and when you meet and any other details like child care or food or anything like that. So... I'm going to start while they're fanning out. Um, Audrey and I lead the young marrieds group. We're not youngly married, but uh, it's a lot of fun. We meet on Wednesday nights from 6.30 until whenever we're done, um, and we uh, also have a meal together. So, uh, yeah. After everybody talks about their group, if you are interested, uh, we are taking interest sign-ups for every group. There's also Dave, who will have a, hey, none of these fits what I want type. Um, clipboard. So if if you don't hear something or your schedule is such that you can't make it to one of these, sign up with Dave and we're going to take that and try and um, put some, some other groups together depending on interest. So let's start over here with the next. At this point, we'd invite you to pray. Dear God, we thank you for the opportunity to come together today and just 
worship you as a community, God. We, we thank you for the support that we get from each other that you have provided to us. And we thank you for your love and grace. We love you. Amen.